we must all realize that empathy is not in our DNA. It's not. Empathy is taught. It is taught. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about the leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Comfort Cases, Rob Shear. Comfort Cases is one of the many organizations that grew out of personal experience and a very personal mission. As somebody who grew up in the foster care system himself, Rob understands firsthand the needs, pains, and opportunities to support kids going through the system today. The idea for Comfort Cases came out of the need for a little bit of dignity, for the desire for the kids in the foster care system to have something of their own they can be proud of, and empower them to enter uncertain living conditions with a few of the basics they need to survive. Comfort Cases is doing some fantastic work in a cause area that most of us honestly don't know that much about. And Rob has a fascinating personal backstory to boot. Hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us, man. It's great to have you on the podcast. You know, thank you so much. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I know you have a very compelling personal story with the foster care system. I think it's a system that most people don't, frankly, understand very well. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. So I would love to just start with with your story, about kind of how you grew up in the system, but also how does the system function? Like, what is it that people don't understand about the system in general that they should? I really think that the system is not broken. See, broken things, actually, you can take super glue and put them back together. But when things are shattered, they have to be rebuilt. And our foster care system is completely shattered. It is an industry that makes money on the backs of children. And just like what happened to me in 1979, I had been living with my mother and my father. I was the youngest of 10 children. My mother had been married six times. We lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. That's the way I grew up. I mean, I'm 56 years old, and every day when I get in the shower, I am reminded about the torture that I went to as a little boy because of the cigarettes that my father would put out on us kids. But to me, that was life. That was my family. That was everything that I knew. And then in 79, I went into foster care. And for me, I thought going into foster care meant I was going to go into a family that wanted me compared to a family that, you know, abused me. And I remember going to the very first home. And I remember when I walked into the front door with my trash bag with nothing but torn and tattered clothes in it. I just really wanted them to look at me and be excited that I was there, but I didn't get that. I didn't get that feeling. Instead, they were more concerned about the fact that I didn't have any decent church clothes to wear the next day. And, you know, then they put me in the bathroom and told me that I needed to get cleaned up. And being 12 years old and coming into a stranger's home, and being put in a bathroom and requiring to use a bar of soap that the entire house had used, and these were strangers, it is such the lack of dignity. And we see that every single day. You know, we are averaging roughly one child every two minutes that come into foster care. That's 700 kids a day. And they're walking into a house of strangers. Like for me at that moment in my life, I remember it, even at 12 standing there saying I was going to be different. I was, this family was going to fall in love with me. 
And so I would wake up in the morning and, you know, I would clean the kitchen before, you know, my foster parents asked me to. And, you know, they had three biological children. And, you know, they reminded me that all the time as they would say, these are my biological kids and this is our foster kid. But you know what? I had a roof over my head. I didn't, someone wasn't beating me and putting cigarettes out on me. So I just continued to ride the wave. And, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, I'm still living in the same house. I'm lucky, not like so many kids. I have a son who came to live with me. He'd been living in 11 homes. So I felt lucky. And then it all changed. And it was the fall of 1984. I walked into the front door of my home and there it was. It was something that I had not seen in years, which was my trash bag. And it was full. And I remember looking at my foster father. And by the way, I called him dad because I truly thought he loved me. And I asked him, Mike, I said, why is this here? And he said, you have to go. And I said, I have to go. I said, what do you mean? And I looked at my mom and she says, you're 18 years old now. And you know what? We're not getting a check any longer and you can't live in this house. This house? I thought this was my home. And I literally picked up my trash bag in Northern Virginia and I walked out the front door and I became homeless. And so for the first couple of nights, it was probably the scariest time of my life. I remember, you know, don't even think I really slept finding, you know, under the bridge or, you know, an abandoned building and, Um, finally I decided that I was going to walk, I was going to go to school and I did, I hid my trash bag and I walked into school. No one acknowledged me. Um, no matter how long my hair had gotten now and how dirty and skinny and, you know, my rotten teeth and, you know, my, the fact that I had holes in my shoes, nobody ever just acknowledged me besides the kids who pushed me in the lockers or, and then June of 1985, it happened. I made it. I made it to graduation day. I remember I had to borrow a cap and gown because I didn't have money to, you know, rent one like everybody else. And it was this big over, didn't fit me right. I remember the kid in front of me didn't want to be close to me because I smelled and the kid behind me kept kicking me and laughing. That trash bag that my community had handed me in 1979 did its job, did its job. It made me feel disposable. It made me feel invisible and it made me feel that it did not matter. At that moment in my life at 18, I realized that kids who are in foster care, we only have three choices and that is it. Three choices. Choice number one, we give up. We literally give up. Suicide rate in foster care is so high and don't think that there were not nights that I did not think about taking my life. Number two, we give in. We give in. We do exactly what the community expects of us. Petty crimes, incarceration, drug addiction. As you and I have this conversation today, 80% of our death row inmates were either in foster care or touched by foster care. Or number three, give it all I got. That's exactly what I decided to do. I decided to join the United States Navy and make something of myself. And I truly did. I became a very, very successful businessman. It's also crazy to somebody like me who's never experienced this personally that a family or, or some parents would take on a foster kid as like a moneymaker, as like a financial transactional thing. I, I just think it's, it's, it's hard to comprehend for somebody who hasn't experienced it. 
So let's let's talk about that a little bit, and let's talk about the things that would need to happen to really create a system where kids that come from traumatized homes would be able to enter a loving environment and be supported through their developmental years. Not all foster parents are bad. Let's let's get that out there, and let you know. I don't, you know, I get an I get enough hate mail as it is about my 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 vocalness that I am. Not all of them are bad. The problem is, is enough of them are bad that it has completely tainted our system. And you know, the fact that when you look at states where you are given a thousand dollar check every single month per child that lives in your house with no accountability whatsoever. You are given daycare. You are given, um, you know, before and after care. You're given health insurance. Um, if you make a certain income, you could even qualify for Section 8 housing if you're, if you're a foster parent. You're given WIC if you have children under the age of five. I mean, there is so much. But then at the end of the day, Nothing has to be spent on that child. No one comes to you and says, by the way, can I see the receipt that you took him over there to Target to buy him some new shorts? Instead, what you do is you take them to the local, what they call the rainbow room, and they get to shop for free of someone's used clothes. And so it is truly something that you can make money off of, and people are making money off of it. There was just a case recently in the state of Florida where a woman had eight children in foster care living with her um, and come to find out she had them living in a trailer and not in her house. Um, and, you know, they had been there for several years. And it was finally when one of the children said something to a teacher that the case opened up and found out that for years, this woman had been milking the system, kids after kids after kids. And by the way, when social workers come and visit, which they do, we're not going to say anything. We're not going to say anything. And let me explain to you why we don't say anything, because we truly know that the next place that we go could be worse. And I think that that's something that nobody really understands. Again, it is there's no accountability whatsoever. This is something that I've always said. Number one, um, foster care is not the answer. When you have 64% of kids who enter the foster care system because of one word, and that word is neglect, okay? Neglect is defined differently in every single state, but I will tell you what neglect is. It is poverty. Poverty is neglect. So what we should be doing is trying to figure out how do we go in and help fix that family before that child even comes into the system. If you can take a child out of their home and put them with strangers. Why can't we bring a stranger into the home and stabilize the house? Why can't we take the perpetrator out of the home instead of having to remove the child every time? Why can't we, you know, really be the support system for the the mothers that, you know, because, because we know we have, there's so many single mothers. Why can't we be that support system? You know, there, there are cases all over our country where children are taken away from their, their birth mother because she wasn't able to get a babysitter and she left the child because she had to go to work. You know, whose fault is that? That's our fault as a community. You know, there wasn't enough food in the pantry. Whose fault is that? That is our fault as a community. See, the thing that we have forgotten as humans is why did our forefathers build communities? And they built communities to take care of each other, to take care of each other. And if you need a piece of bread and I have it, I should share that bread with you.
And I think that we have forgotten that. And I think that that is something we have to listen. We're always going to have to have foster care, Mike. I mean, the fact is, is that I have five children. All five of my babies were adopted out of the system. All five of my kids carried a trash bag when they walked into the front door. And two of my children came from severe, and I am talking severe abuse. There was no way these kids should ever, ever, ever be reunified with their birth parents because the abuse was so bad. Um, so the system is always going to be needed. But what the problem is, is that the system needs to be rebuilt. See, I always say, if you pick that low-hanging fruit off a tree, a tree will grow taller. And there's so many low-hanging fruits in foster care that we could be doing immediately. Number one, we could set these children up for financial success, financial success. And this is exactly, I, my husband and I, we adopted our fifth child at the age when he was 18 years old. That's even unheard of. You know, he was getting ready to age out of the system and it wasn't going to happen on my watch. I met him as I was giving a speech. Little would I know that three months later I would be petitioning the courts for him to be our son. But here is this kid who... If he if he had not found his forever family, you know, he would have been given five hundred dollars when he aged out and say so long. But what we should be doing is when the child arrives in the system, first thing we need to do is immediately start mental health you know, evaluations, giving these kids therapy immediately, and then also talking immediately. And I don't care if they are four, five, seven, nine, 12, 13, whatever. The moment they walk in the system, we need to be thinking about tomorrow. We need to be thinking about tomorrow for them. So what do we do? We take a little bit of that stipend that we give these foster parents and we put it in an interest bearing savings account. So when they do turn 18 or 21, whatever, any state, because every state has a different age of, the, of consent of aging out, that at least they have something. And I'm not saying write them a check. I'm saying give them an opportunity to have down payments for a car. Give them an opportunity to have a, you know, a security deposit for rent. We look at the reason that children are not going to college who are in foster care or secondary schools. It's because, you know, the states all of a sudden go in and pound their chest. Pennsylvania, Maryland, Florida, California. I can go on and on. Look what we do. We pay tuition for all the children if you're in foster care. If you enter foster care and you age out of the system and you want to go to college, we will pay your tuition if you stay within the state. Okay, fine. That's fine. Thank you for that. But um, how do I pay for my food? Um, how do I pay for my health insurance? Um, what do you do with me in December when you close the campus and I have no family? I go to a shelter. See, the thing is, is that we don't think it through. We must say, listen, if we're going to pay for these children's tuition, we need to pay for all the wraparound services to make them healthy humans of our society, because that's what we want, because as somebody, like I said, I'm 56 years old, I remember hearing this all the time. People would say, oh, invest in a child and you invest in their future. You know, that is such a BS lie. That is not true. When you invest in a child, Mike, you actually invest in your future, in my future. And the reason for that is because they are our leaders of tomorrow. Hi, Mike here. 
I'd like to take a quick time out from the episode to let you know a little bit more about a project we're working on called Altruist. There's a deeply held secret in the nonprofit space, which for some of you may be just a little bit controversial, and that is philanthropy does not equal impact. The challenges faced by our global community are more complex and urgent than ever before. And for philanthropic funders who care about impact, for those passionate about really moving the needle on important social issues, there's very little information available to help guide the decision-making around their investments. That's where Altruist comes in, by seeking out the best, most innovative and promising high-impact solutions, by combining top-quality impact measurement, evaluation, and analysis with insights into social good organizations that focuses on strength and sustainability rather than overhead. Altruist helps funders of all kinds, philanthropists, family offices, foundations, and businesses, direct their resources to the programs and organizations best equipped to solve the challenges they care most about in the regions of the world they're most interested in supporting. With personalized recommendations, engaging multimedia storytelling, seamless funding execution, Altruist levels the playing field, creates unprecedented efficiencies, and most importantly, drives funding to the most impactful social good organizations around. For more information, check us out at www.altruist.org. That's www.altruous.org. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Do they provide a coach of any kind to like help them say, like, okay, here are the things that you need. Here's how you become a self-sufficient adult. This is the biggest problem, again, with the system, is that they wait until these kids are 16 and 17. And by the way, by that time, they're so pissed off. They don't want anything to do with you. You know, they don't want anything. They are tired of you knocking on their door, you know, twice a month. They're tired of you walking into their school, you know, other kids knowing that you're you're the, the foster kid. First of all, how dare us? You know, how dare us be in 2023 and we have not changed our vocabulary? These are not foster kids. These are kids who are in foster care. These are kids who are experiencing foster care. These are kids our kids. And the fact that we, you know, all of a sudden expect at 16 and 17, they're going to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to stay in the system till I'm 21. Um, and I'm going to allow you to continue. No, at 18, they are giving us the middle finger and saying, I can do this on my own because you have failed me enough. The anger is so, and I see it all over the country. As a public speaker, I travel all over the country. I get to meet kids in foster care all over the country, including the UK, and I get the same from every single child. You failed me. You failed me. And when you fail someone, why would they stay around no matter what you have to offer? Tell us about comfort cases. Why is the dignity piece and setting kids up for that transition well so important? When my children arrived 14 years ago, um, my first four children arrived, they were six months, two, two, and four. Two sets of siblings, all within three months they arrived. All four of them carried a trash bag. And I just couldn't believe it. I remember saying to the social worker, are you telling me after all of these years that I've been out of the system, that we still allow kids to carry trash bags? And her exact words to me, and I write about it in my memoir, she said, well, what should they carry? And I said, how about some dignity? You know, and that really stuck in my mind. But I was a banker. I was all concerned about my career. I was concerned about my husband was an interior designer. We only cared about the fact that our children went to the best schools, wore designer clothes, and that they traveled the world to give them all the opportunities that they didn't have as a 
as when they were little. And then 10 years ago, I was sitting in my office. My husband, Reese, walked into my office. He, he At that point, he had given up his career to be a stay-at-home dad. And we would do these like big toy drives at Christmas time. And we'd take our kids to, you know, the Toys R Us and let them buy all these toys for those needy kids, you know. And this one particular year, I said to Reese, I said, I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do the toy drive. And he said, what do you mean? He was like, the kids love to, you know, everybody comes together. We have this big party. And I said, what are we teaching our kids? I said, we're teaching our kids that you give some needy kid a toy and, you know, it makes life all better. And he was like, well, what do you want to do? And I literally opened up my desk drawer and I pulled out a trash bag. See, the fact is I keep a trash bag with me always. And the reason for that, I don't want to forget where I came from. I don't want to forget. And I laid it on my desk and I said, I want to eliminate trash bags in foster care for DC. And he literally looked at me and said, you are batshit crazy. And I said, <laughs> I said, I know that's exactly why you married me. And so we gathered members of our, my senior staff and we gathered some local politicians who were friends of ours and some members of our church. And, um, and I told my story. The story that I just shared with you and your listeners and decided that we wanted to get a backpack, a brand new backpack. We decided we wanted to make sure that every child had a brand new pair of pajamas. I wanted every child to have their own lotion, their own shampoo, their own conditioner and their own bar of soap. I wanted every child to have their own toothbrush and toothpaste. And by the way, Mike, my beautiful teeth and my teeth are beautiful. They cost me an arm and a leg, okay? They cost me an arm and a leg because nobody bothered to give me a toothbrush when I was a kid in the system. And then I wanted every kid to have an activity. I wanted kids under the age of 10 to get a coloring book and crayons and kids over the age of 10 to get a journal and a pen and pencil set. And then I wanted every kid to have a book. I wanted every kid to have a stuffed animal because I truly do believe whether you're a newborn or you're 21 or 56, we all love a good stuffy. And then finally, a blanket. And with that, we packed our first case and another and another. And I thought after 200 cases that that would be it. I went back to my office. My kids went back to school. And little would I know that somebody heard about what we had done and they wanted to know if they could interview me. And I said, of course. And so I did the interview. And the next thing you know, Comfort Cases was born. And in the height of the pandemic, when most people didn't know what the hell to do, my team was building a center in the UK where we actually serve 84,000 children in the United Kingdom who also are in foster care and who also carry trash bags just like here in the US. The toy drive stuff that you mentioned, in, in a way, obviously it's like a, a positive thing overall, but in a way it sort of reinforces the transactional nature of what's already going on in the foster care system where you sort of throw some money at it and kind of go on your way, where this is like, in a way it's treating the root cause because the you're arming the kids with things that provide a sense of agency. It's a, it's a way they can take care of themselves, right? You know, five years ago, Reese and I had realized that, you know, our whole goal was to eliminate trash bags. And we realized that these backpacks really weren't doing it. So we got together with some amazing designers, um, Amy Ketzenberg, who is a leading handbook designer, Briggs and Riley, who um, designed luggages. And I, we got together with them and we designed what we call a Comfort XL. And it is a 32 inch duffel bag. It retails for about $149. And um, um, 
these are actually given to children who are in our foster care. And we have delivered about 90,000 of them. Um, we give them to frontline workers. So they get the comfort case and then they get the 32 inch duffel bag. So that way nobody ever can give me an excuse that somebody needs a trash bag. Um, so you, you tell me the problem. I'm going to show you how to solve it. And this to me is truly the way to solve the problem of a child making sure that they have dignity. And we must understand the trash bag comes in because there's nothing else to grab. Children, you know, the police come into the home, the social worker enters the house. They tell the kids, you got two minutes to grab your stuff and we're out of here. And that's what's the first thing that they hand them. They have rolls of them in their trunks. So now what we do, we have designed this bag that it folds up like a book. So you can't give me any BS about storage and space, but they're able to give it to these kids, open it up, and these kids can put their belongings in there and they can walk out of their home and go into their new place with some dignity and not carrying a damn trash bag, which by the way, trash bags were invented and made for one purpose, and that's to put trash in, not children's clothing. These duffel bags that you have, the, the police and the social workers and whoever is that sort of point of intervention, they, they're actually the distribution mechanism in a way. They can actually just grab it and hand it over. Better believe it. You know, and, and the, the crazy thing is, is that, you know, our organization, um, we do not charge. So they literally can go to comfortcases.org. They can go and order 50 cases a month, every month. We have birth up to the age of 21. And then they also can order 50 of the Comfort XLs every single month. Um, and there is no charge for them. So, you know, you cannot give me the excuse that you have to pay for them because we've done better. We've made sure that these items are free to children who are in foster care. We do no branding whatsoever. We do not even brand our own organization on anything when it comes to our comfort cases. And we do not allow any company to brand anything when it comes to anything that goes in those cases. And the reason for that is because children in our system are there because of a choice someone else made, a choice that someone else made. I do not need to tag them and let other people know that they are a child from the foster care system. Let's let them be kids. Curious for comfort cases, like how you measure impact, how you think about impact today and how it's evolved over the years. So I will tell you, the thing that gets me is that, you know, especially when you're doing grants and stuff, they always want to measure and your impact, you know, what your flow in, flow out is. And it's very hard with, with a nonprofit like ours. But what we've done is we've gone one step further. We actually make sure that we have dialogues with social workers where children are receiving the cases. So we are tracking at this point of, you know, how children are feeling. What are foster parents feeling like? You know, um, just yesterday, there was a, a foster parent who in another state, their child arrived and their child arrived with a with a comfort case. And um, it was an emergency placement. So they didn't have anything to prepare for this child. But they had this backpack that had everything that that kid needed for, you know, in the that night I, to get an email from a foster parent to say, you have no idea the, the, the weight you took off my shoulders. So those are the ways we have to measure it. Other than that, I, I've, I've said this in, in large settings and you know all the universities you think of, only time will tell, only time will tell. But, but guess what? The fact is, is at least we're doing something because for the longest time, anybody was doing, they weren't doing anything. So, you know, but only time will tell. You mentioned to me when we last spoke that you do some other stuff too now, providing scholarships, 
your graduation rate, application rate. Talk a little bit about some of the stuff beyond the cases. I have a soft spot when it comes to kids who are aging out of the system because I was one. And, and you know, adopting a son who at the age of 18, who was getting ready to age out, um, who would have ever thought, you know, it's just it just doesn't happen. And so through our organization, um, we actually give scholarships out to children who are aging out of the system and going on to higher education, whether that's a trade school or a college. This year, we're actually giving five scholarships out. But, you know, we do something different. We just don't write them a check. We assign them a mentor that reaches out to them every single month, has conversations with them. We help, for instance, we just helped a young girl who was one of our scholars get housing for this summer because she's in between, you know, going to fall and, you know, the end of the the school year. Um, We send every um, scholar every single month, they get a hope box from us. And that hope box is a box that's filled with gift cards and, you know, laundry detergent and cards cards and, you know, and the reason we do that is because we want to keep that connection. See, the fact is children in our system, they don't see a connection. And that's why we we see such failure in our high school graduation rate, failure within our college application rate, failure within our kids who receive four-year degrees, because they feel no connection. And that's something that we just do not allow here at Comfort Cases. So, you know, we have gone further than just giving a child a case when they enter the system. We also are trying to be as much of a support mechanism when they also exit out of the system. It seems like a pretty unicorn organization, rocket ship to the to the moon sort of a deal. I'm curious, you know, what are some things that surprised you in that trajectory, some things that you guys got wrong or some setbacks that were unexpected and kind of how you dealt with them and what you guys learned? We learn every day. And so, for instance, you know, um, all of the items that I said that we put in the case, we now add things like Bomba socks. We we think about girls who are over the age of 12. We we provide feminine products. We think about children over the age of 10 who truly, as a father of four boys, need deodorant. And so we add a deodorant in. So those were some of the things in the very beginning of, that, you know, we had missed. But now we we do it. You can't talk about comfort cases. Outside of that, what's the most important cause that humanity can be tackling right now? People that are experiencing homelessness. I think that it is absolutely devastating the fact of what rent is for housing. It's absolutely devastating that we have all of these abandoned office buildings because of COVID, that we have not figured a way to turn them into housing. It's absolutely horrifying to walk down a street and having to see somebody who really does not want to be experiencing homelessness, but has no other choice. And um, that is something as a country that we must, we must fix immediately is, you know, because once you put someone into their own home, I'm telling you, we've seen it. We know this is true. You know, the pride of they get, you know, they're able to be better humans. And I think we need to address that immediately. When you decide it's sort of time to, you know, hang it up, go go travel and, and focus on your, your family or whatever it is you choose to do post-career, uh, what's something that you would like to look back and have accomplished? First of all, I don't believe in the word retirement um, because I already retired. I, I, I retired already after 28 years in banking. Um, but you know what? I, I, I really truly do believe that when I look back, you know, looking at my five children and seeing the fact that um, that their dads really truly instilled empathy in them. See, the fact is, as humans, we must all realize that empathy is not in our DNA. It's not. 
Empathy is taught. It is taught. And for me to be able to look at these five incredible humans, to know that their father and I have done everything in our power to make sure they understand how important it is to have empathy for each and every person that breathes on this planet. To me, that's the success story. Who's somebody else that you really admire uh, who's doing good work and why? So for me to answer that question, it would not be truthful because I feel that so many times those of us who are even doing it right, we're so worried about our donors um, and losing that donor that we don't support each other. And that's why I had started my podcast, Fostering Change, where I actually highlight nonprofits because I want people to talk about other nonprofits. But, you know, um, you know, I, I've been very lucky. I, I'm, I'm really good friends with Tiffany Haddish. She has an amazing foundation that she's really, really worked very, very hard on. You know, um, my, my, my amazing friend, Ashley Brown, who's Selfless Love Foundation, who is just growing this amazing, amazing organization. Um, you know, my, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that I get to call Leanne Tui from the blind side, one of my dearest and closest friends and her foundation, the support that she's giving so many kids, um, it's sometimes unrecognizable. And so, you know, those are people that immediately come to mind for me. What's next on the horizon for you and for Comfort Cases and how can people support your work? The next thing on the horizon for us is to continue to do the work that we're doing. But what I need people to do is I need people to realize that this is all of our responsibility. These children don't belong to me. They don't belong to you. They belong to us. And so what I ask people to do is go to comfortcases.org and become what we call a bag buster, a bag buster. And literally for just $10 a month. And by the way, most people spend that in that overpriced coffee shop. But literally for $10 a month, I am able to remove a trash bag from a child's hands and put a Comfort XL in their hand. So I really want them to do that. And what's next for us? You know, we've traveled into the UK. Our next stop is Canada, the Dominican Republic, um, and watching to see if my, my, my memoir actually gets turned into that movie that people are talking about. You know, how do the foster systems compare around the world? Are we like especially bad or is it just kind of a common problem for everybody? They're all bad. You know, Nelson Mandela said, you judge your society by the way you treat your children. You judge your society by the way you treat your children. We all get an F, an F. And that's why it's important that we get into these places and make that change. Well, Rob, I just, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today, for sharing your insights and your story. Uh, I've learned a ton. I really appreciate you know, the way you think about community, taking the broad view and long-term view on everything and, and the way, you know, you treat sort of that sense of agency uh, with your staff as well as the, the folks that you serve. Thank you very much for the work you're doing and, and for spending time with us today and, and sharing your experiences. Thank you, my friend. You take care. I can't wait to talk again. That's our show for this week. Thank you as always to our guest, Rob Shear and the entire team at WCPG for helping to make this one happen. You can learn more about Comfort Cases at comfortcases.org and in the show notes at causeandpurpose.org. If you enjoyed the episode, Please follow, subscribe, or leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share a link with any friends or colleagues you think might find it valuable. Our next guest is the founder and CEO of $4, Jared Walker. $4 is one of my personal favorite type of organizations. They provide direct services in a relatively obscure but badly needed niche while simultaneously affecting systems change. They're extremely efficient as well in that relatively small donation amounts turn into tangible impact on a massive scale. 
Until then, Cause and Purpose is a production of Altruist.org. On behalf of myself, Rob, and our entire team, thanks so much for listening and look forward to speaking with you again soon.